0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power
1: to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to Taiwan On Air, Peng Zhong Taiwan. Hello, everyone. This is Zhang Dihan, one of the hosts of our Taiwan on Air podcast series. This podcast episode is sponsored by Helsinki Environmental Humanities Microgrant. The University of Helsinki is currently supporting projects which focus on global development of environmental humanities. And we are glad to be bringing our Taiwan on Air podcast also as part of this larger project. So today, we're here for a book chat relating to Taiwan eco-translation. Our special guest of the day is Professor Daryl Sturk from University of Lingnan in Hong Kong, who is known by many working on Taiwan and read about Taiwan. Today, Daryl is not only an established academic, but also a high acclaimed translator who specializes in contemporary Taiwan eco-literature and indigenous studies. Like many others, I came across Daryl's translation through Wu Mingyi's novel. I was back then a doctoral student working on my thesis argument through Wu Mingyi's postcolonial colonial writing, such as Sui Mian de Hangxian, Rules in the Dream, Fu Yanren, The Men with the Compound Eyes, and Tianqiao Shang de The Magician on the Skywalk. And I remember in 2015, when Wu Mingyi published the Stolen Bicycles, Danzi Su Zi, I thought, wow, this is an amazing book. I must include it in my dissertation. So I began to translate parts of the novel that myself needed. But just before I completed the writing of my thesis, Darrow already made the English translation available for the international readers. And it was such a great work that at the end, he had to pull out this work so amazingly, I have to revise my own work. But it wasn't until very recently that I had the actual opportunity to work with Darrow directly with the invitations from another scholar, Ian Rowan from National Taiwan Normal University, Sudan the three of us began to work together and co-edit for a translation anthology of contemporary eco-literature. We include works from indigenous eco-literature, ocean writings, climate fictions, and speculative indigenous fiction. Throughout that process, I have personally learned a great deal from working with Darrow directly as a translator and also as a translation editor. And I must say, that I was very, very impressed by his rigorousness for translation and the attention to details how a translator should perceive the work both as a reader and a second author. I'm really looking forward to seeing that anthology coming into print in the coming year and to be part of the collections of the National Museum of Taiwan Literature. There are simply too many renowned works that weren't translated by Darrell. To name a few of his works that are commonly known by international readers, apart from Wu Mingyi's The Man with the Count Eyes and The Stolen Bicycle, there is also Sakinu Alonglong's Hunter School, Sanju Feizu Sajinu, Kevin Chen's Ghost Town, Gui Difang, Yen's Ground Zero, Ling Di Dian. And I know that recently Daro is also working hard on a translation of a semi-autobiographical novel for the famous indigenous writer Xiaman Man I think I'll start my introduction here and let our special guest to say hi instead to our podcast audience. Welcome to our Taiwan On Air, Daryl.
0: Thanks. Uh, it's nice to be here. Thanks for the invitation.
1: So Daryl, I'm going to start with questions related to your career to be a translator or how you say as an eco translator. Knowing you a little bit, I noticed that you have made quite some different choices throughout your undergraduate to your postgraduate studies. I read somewhere that you did English literature as an undergrad student in your 20s.
0: That's right. I have a degree in English Lit. Yeah. And it was back then you started learning Mandarin Chinese. It was in fourth year. I was 22 years old when I started learning Mandarin for the first time.
1: Oh, right. That's very early, actually. And in the 1990s, you said that you moved to Taipei and taught English there, but I seem to see uh, that you also switched to biology and chemistry. And although your MA PhD focuses specifically in East Asian study, and with a particular emphasis on indigenous people in Taiwan, it wasn't directly related to translation somehow. So my question is that can you tell our podcast audience a little bit more how you ended up being a Chinese English translator and more specifically, why eco translations in Taiwan? I'm curious why you choose a path working predominantly on eco translation and how would you define eco translation in your own way?
0: Great question. Um, well, after graduating from uh, uh, University of Alberta with a degree in, uh, in English literature and then spending a couple of years in Taiwan teaching English, I came back to Canada, or went back to Canada, and had a midlife crisis, and uh, wandered through biology, chemistry, organic chemistry, thinking I was going to be a doctor, and then I ended up taking linguistics classes, and uh, finally classical Chinese, and that uh, took me to the University of Toronto, where I did a uh, master's thesis on sushi poems about Zen Buddhism, which I translated into English and, and talked about, and I became a translator a few years later. When I was teaching, or rather translating, study plans and reference letters. You remember those? um,
1: Oh right, right. I remember
0: businesses on Nanyangjie in Taipei, just south of the uh, train station. I I worked in one of those uh, sweatshops for a year, and eventually started translating um, all kinds of things: technical, uh, legal, uh, medical, military, anything they threw at me. I tried to translate whether I knew it or not. And so in the process of translation, I tried to learn a little bit more about uh, everything under the sun, including biology and chemistry. And um, how I got into eco-translation was really through translating Umi'i's *Fuyenren*, because I know you know the novel well. So throughout the novel, he's referring to different flora and fauna in Taiwan, different species of plant and animal. And it's easy for me to look these things up, so there's a, a species of damselfly or a species of uh a fig tree but to be honest at the time i had no idea what a damselfly was and uh, i couldn't have pointed out a fig tree to you so i kind of felt a little bit ashamed of myself for being able to translate these things without really knowing what they were and so i got obsessed by the fact that i i didn't know the things i was seeing around me every day especially natural creatures and you know in these um, uh, novels, you're supposed to observe plants and animals and have this idea that they're observing you, right? So you can kind of identify with them. And like, they've basically, even a plant has basically got the same problems that you do. It's got to survive. It's got to reproduce. It's got to try to leave something behind. So um, I started uh, getting to know plants and animals and then adopting this um, this idea that they were looking back at me. And that uh, we actually had a lot in common. So, eco-translation in the past couple of years has been about me trying to become a naturalist here in Hong Kong. So, I'm going to do a project about eco-translation of Hong Kong and other Sinophone cities, basically just uh, using bilingual websites and uh, field guides about different aspects of nature. So, there's a plant field guide, there's dragonfly field guide damselfly field guide, beetle field guide. And it's all bilingual. And so I'm just curious as to why the people that produce these field guides and websites, why they did it and uh, what challenges they had when they were doing it, how readers have been using it. So that's the one project for eco-translation. The other project is I'm looking at uh, Saedic, um ethnobotany, Sa'dic people are in Taiwan, one of the indigenous peoples in Taiwan. And so they are they're translating their traditional knowledge, which was an oral tradition. And it was a a practical tradition. So they knew how to do stuff. And they could talk about it, but they didn't have to talk about it. They just demonstrated their know-how. But nowadays, they're writing it down in Sa'dic, their ancestral language, and they're also translating it into uh, Mandarin. And so I'm interested, to what extent does this translate? To what extent can you translate concepts from uh, sadic tradition and uh, contemporary Mandarin. And that's uh, the question I ask now when I'm doing this kind of eco-translational study.
1: I see. Okay. So it's very interesting because um, you were saying that about the translations on Sidiq's language. I knew that previously you also did the film
0: translations for Sidi Ballet, if I'm not mistaken. You're not mistaken, but um, I would prefer to to say that I studied the uh, film translation for the movie. The translation was done from Mandarin into Saedic by uh, Saedic elders
1: Um, who
0: have now passed on. Okay, Very sadly, I started doing this project studying the translation of the Chinese language screenplay into Saedic about 10 years ago. And the people I worked with when I uh, was doing the research for that book, have passed away now. So uh, I was studying how they translated from Mandarin to Sa'edek, and I discovered that um, when he was doing the uh, screenplay in Mandarin, the director, Weido Sung, is also the screenwriter, he included translations from Saidic that were recorded in uh, the 1910s, 1920s, and 1930s. So in a way, when um, he commissioned translators to translate his screenplay from Mandarin into Saitic those translators were translating back into Sadik about 100 years later. Right. So that's the project I was doing for that book.
1: It was a sort of a double-way sort of project. It's not necessarily from Sadik and then being translated again to English, but it's more like from Mandarin it was written and then translated back to Sadik, and then you put part of it in English.
0: That's right. But I didn't translate the uh, subtitles into English. It was somebody else. That was more grist for the mill, you know? I see. I was mainly focusing on translation from Mandarin into Sadic.
1: I see, I see. Interesting because it seems to me like that you are very fascinated in your early stage on more like film and representations and indigenous studies. Do you see that eco-translation sort of combined also this part of the indigenous multiverse or reverse uh, that we can say that uh, in your ways of working through translation?
0: I think so. When I'm looking at uh, these plants and animals, I'm, um, I'm imagining them looking back at me. Maybe that sounds a little bit crazy, but after translating uming Yi, I kind of got into the habit. And I think children, uh, you've got children, right? So children always have this idea that, um, I don't know, uh, a stool here and uh, a chair there and uh, a tree across the way might, might all be uh, sentient in some way. They're all animists. anyway. I also imagine myself being like a, an indigenous hunter 150 years ago, because the thing about indigenous hunters is that in order to hunt effectively, they got to notice all kinds of stuff when they're going through the, the wilderness that ordinary people don't know. The wilderness for them is, is full of signs, and they know how to interpret the signs. So I, um, of course, I can't do it. I'm not an indigenous hunter, but I uh, kind of uh, imagine myself being one, or tried to look at uh, nature the way a hunter might. So sometimes when I'm wandering through the bushes in Hong Kong, I'll see uh, scat, I'll see uh, animal uh, shit, and uh, so you can identify it. Sometimes uh, some animals will shit like in the middle of a stream, so they can't be followed because if they shit elsewhere, it's along the trail, and then they can be then they can be tracked. And I found um, porcupine quills and. Porcupines, it turns out, are, are really important to uh, the way uh, uh, an ecosystem turns out. If there's porcupines there, they're going to root around, and it's not going to be dense bushes. But I live on an island here called Lama Island, and we don't have porcupines, and so the bush is really dense. You can't walk through the bush unless you bushwhack. Indigenous people, for me, and I think this is why I studied them, have always represented this deeper understanding and more intimate practical understanding of uh, nature that growing up in Canada I never got like I grew up in a in a suburb I never paid any attention to trees and animals around me not a concrete jungle but like the park across the street was the closest I got to nature
1: (laughs) me too in Kaohsiung
0: yeah Okay, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, strangely enough, our upbringings have a lot in common, and so um, since I started researching indigenous people and uh, translating Umingi, it's like I've been I've been led back towards nature, trying to understand what it's all about and uh, figure out a healthier relationship with with nature.
1: That's fascinating. Like I see why you are like sort of more and more into the genre of fictions and then through Umingi as well. So shifting our subject to uh, more on a book, because this podcast, we meant to pick a book to talk about. I will be mainly focusing on Wu ming The Stolen Bicycles, <laughs> uh, Wu Ming-Yi's Man Booker Prize uh, long-listed novel. I remember that talking to the French translator of Xiamen Rambongan, Damien Ligo, he said that when he translated the Tao indigenous language inside of this work, He used a French Creole in order to represent different language, but written in the sinophone, sort of like a written language structure. As a key leader of Wu Mingyi's work, we know that he also employs a variety of different languages to showcase the cultural and linguistic diversity in Taiwan. And of course, it is also the case in the stolen bicycles. For example, Japanese daigi, hoklo, and from time to time, a couple of vocabulary here and there from indigenous people's uh, languages. And he's more sort of polyphony type of like incorporating all these. Can you tell our audience what is then your strategy to translate when you're dealing with these sort of non mandarin Chinese texts or specific terms?
0: Well, thank you. That's another great question. And uh, I'm glad you told me about uh, Damien's strategy of using Creole because Guinelle Gaffric said that he did something similar when he was translating uh, the man with the compound eyes into French. And if I thought I could have pulled it off, I might have used some sort of uh, South Sea Polynesian Creole based on English. But I think it's easy to strike the wrong note if you don't really know the language. And so I can try to sound like somebody from Texas, or I can (laughs) try to sound like somebody from Polynesia. Yes, Uh, I can try to sound like someone from the Appalachians. But if I'm not from there, I'm probably not going to quite get it right. So ultimately, I would stick to what I know in terms of uh, sociolects of English or idiolects of English. Like, uh, sociolect is a way of speaking that belongs to a certain social class. Idiolect is a way of speaking that belongs to a, a certain person. So I'm just dealing with, with the resources that I've got in English. Omingi. Um, can include Japanese Daigee, and so forth in his novel, but I mean, I grew up in a pretty monolingual environment. My grandparents uh, were Dutch speakers, and you know, there are parts of England where Dutch was spoken, uh, maybe not today, but it was spoken in uh, in centuries past, because a lot of Dutch people ended up migrating from uh, the Netherlands to uh, to England, but I'm not from there and I don't know Dutch, so uh, I just, I wasn't gonna be able to kind of uh, replicate the distinction between Mandarin and Taiwanese with English and, and Dutch. So um, basically, in The Stolen Bicycle, when the protagonist's uh, mother is speaking to him in Taiwanese, I just imagine what my grandmother would have uh, sounded like speaking in English, All right, And so she should sound like a mother or a grandmother with a similar kind of background to the protagonist's mother. She's not an educated lady. She had lots of kids. She worked really hard during her life. She suffered a lot. So I tried to make her sound like like somebody like that.
1: So it's the tonality like sort of accounts in a way
0: that's right. It's um a big challenge to get uh, people to sound natural when it's uh, scripted vocabulary. When we watch a movie or when we're reading a novel, the vocabulary is invented by one person or Maybe a couple of people, if a translator worked together with somebody else or the the writer worked together with somebody else, but it's invented, so it's not entirely natural, but it's got to somehow sound natural. So that's the biggest challenge of all. In terms of uh, representing the diversity of Taiwan linguistically, I can use uh, romanization. So if uh, it's a word in Japanese and it's a Japanese speaker, then I try to use the Japanese. Romanization, and the same point goes for Taiwanese. And of course, I have to tell the reader what this means, but I can indicate that this was uh, in in a certain language. And I got an example from the stolen bicycle. Yuanfen is a big concept in Chinese for many people. It's this idea that uh, things are destined to happen or fated to happen personal relationships especially uh romantic relationships and so i had Yuan fun appearing three times in the novel one time in a japanese context one time in a taiwanese context one time in a mandarin context so i wanted to spell it three different ways in the three different times that appeared in the novel but my editor didn't let me i had an editor at the publisher and uh so she let me put in a a lot of uh Taiwanese in Romanization, but she didn't let me get um, away with that. I also wanted to spell uh, you know, Taipei. Taipei has been spelled all sorts of different ways. It's been Taihoku in uh in Japanese and Taipei with an H at the end in the Qing dynasty, and Taibak in um in Taiwanese, and Taipei, of course, in Mandarin. So I wanted to spell it all sorts of different ways to reflect the linguistic background. And the period of the novel, but again, my uh, editor wouldn't uh, wouldn't let me because she was worried that it was going to make it more difficult for the reader to understand.
1: I can see that definitely, but sometimes presuming a different sort of um, uh, readership, it's difficult to like manage uh, everything to be translated in a way that we want it to be. So following that question, I was going to ask you, do you or do you not prefer to have translator notes? Because um, in neither of the known novels of Wu Ming-Yi, especially that for international readers who are not very always like, familiar with Taiwan history during the Second World War, one could argue that the stolen bicycle could have benefited from some translator notes to summarize the complexity of the dynamics in relation to the country's colonial and also environmental history. Why did you decide not to include this? Is it because you think that anyway, the story can speak for itself to represent itself in that sense?
0: Great question, I think uh, listeners have to keep in mind that um, you can blame the uh, the translator when things don't go right, <laughs> but when things do go right, you have to keep in mind that other people might have been making decisions like my wife will often uh, share her opinions about my translation with me and uh, you know my grandmother I still remember. How she talks. So my grandmother's behind some of the decisions I make as a translator. And then at the publisher, there's the editor that tells me you can't uh, spell Taipei five different ways, and uh, the proofreader might also have opinions. So it's uh, not always the translator's decision to make. And in Fu the man with the compound eyes, I just did not have an opportunity to write a translator's note. The person that uh, decided that they wanted to publish the novel, left the publisher before I submitted the translation. And the new person at the publisher was not very enthusiastic about the novel and did not have it copy edited. It was just proofread. And I, I didn't bother asking, can I write a, a translator's introduction? Because I assumed the answer was going to be no. They wanted to um, do things as cheaply as possible. But... Uh, I'm happy to say that it uh, came out pretty well. Yeah, it
1: came out really well. Well responded to the market.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it's gratifying to hear that 10 years later. And with the Stolen Bicycle, I did get to write a, uh, a translator's note. It may not have made it into the first edition. Ah, I see. But there's a second edition published about six months after the first one or eight months after the first one. And I think you'll see a uh, a translator's note in that. And it's two things about the translator's note. One, it should go after the novel. So it's not like the reader has to take a course in uh, Taiwan's environmental and political history before they can appreciate the novel. Yeah, I think, number one, we shouldn't underestimate readers. And uh, number two, the second point I was going to make, is that it's not the purpose of a novel to educate the reader about Taiwan's environmental and political history. And I think readers can figure it out as they go along. The main point of a novel like The Stolen Bicycle is to get people to care, to get people interested. And um, if they're interested, then they can go on to, uh, to look things up for themselves.
1: It's also their discovery process.
0: That's right. That's right. So Yi has done his job, I've done his job, if the reader ends up interested in the story and caring about the characters and the larger themes that he or she is dealing with. So in the translator's note that I put at the end, I I just talked about a couple of issues that um, I thought might have been confusing for the reader and um, kept it short and sweet. I see. I didn't expect that you can show like that. My copy was a very old (laughs) copy, I
1: suppose.
0: Maybe you got the first edition. Yeah, Yeah, I
1: did get the first edition because I had to for my thesis. I see that we're running almost out of time for the interview. So I just wanted two uh, very, very short questions on doing translations or eco translation today. One is that how do you navigate in doing eco-translations while there is AI in the world competing? And if you can, can you quickly pick a book that you want to translate in the future, if you have the possibility, the golden work that you haven't
0: translated? Right. ChatGPT is, of course, changing everybody's workflow, including translators. A lot of us get ChatGPT to do the first draft, and then we, we post at it. But in my experience, it's too fiddly. It changes the paragraphing. Yeah. And... Uh, that's a big problem for your translation. If you want to check the translation, you've got to go paragraph by paragraph. And you've got to spend all this time making sure it's uh, it aligns properly because ChatGPT will change it. And I, I try numbering the paragraphs and then ChatGPT says, oh, you're you're asking me to do too much at once. So I still prefer to site translate with uh, the dictate function on MS Word. And that way, I uh, I get really intimately familiar with the text. If ChatGPT does it, then I, I still have to get to know the text in the process of editing or uh, post-editing what uh, ChatGPT spits out. And who knows what ChatGPT is going to be like in five years or ten years, but a couple of things. It doesn't have a body like us. It uh, doesn't care like we care, and um, it fundamentally does not get what communication is about in language or in, uh, in images, it's a statistical prediction machine. So it has a, a totally different relationship with language than a translator does. So I'm here, uh, hoping, and I believe that there's still a place for human translators going forward. As for a, a book, I'd like to translate two books come to mind. Yeah. One is called uh, "Tongwang 通往世界的子物. Have you heard of it?
1: Oh, right. I heard about it. I haven't started it, but it was on Wu Ming's recommendation reading this.
0: Yeah, 友子界 is the author, Brendan Yo, Yeah. And it's about uh, plants that grow in Taiwan's mountains and their... Connections to plants around the world. So, have you heard of edelweiss, the um, the pale yellow flower that uh, blooms at 2,500 meters above sea level in Switzerland? And
1: yes, the...
0: <laughs> made famous in the in the Sound of Music. Yes, Sound of Music. There's a distant relative of edelweiss that grows in Taiwan. You can go to Hoh to see it, and Yushan. Oh, All right. And uh, these uh, two kinds of edelweiss ultimately they come from uh, the Himalaya. Uh, so in he traces how over tens of millions of years, this kind of flower has managed to make it to Europe in the West and Taiwan in uh, in the East. And it's called Biogeography. The book is basically an introduction to biogeography. Wow. And I, I think there's something poetic about that, that you're looking at this pale white flower at 3,000 meters above sea level on Hwanshan, and it's got a distant relative that's uh, managed to survive over tens of millions of years in uh, halfway around the world. The other book I would like to translate is Uming Yi's uh, new novel, which is called He Ping Fen and uh, or Fen Guan. I can't remember. But um, I've been asked to translate it. It's uh, about cement mining in uh, the area around the Taroko Gorge, which... You may know is um, traditionally or ancestrally that's where the Truku people are from yeah they speak a kind of sadic and so that's the language I've been studying and there's a lot of sadic in the novel and I got to kind of review the sadic in the novel oh right before it was published and it's kind of about different ways of relating to mountains and nature in general we can extract cement or we can extract the raw materials for cement from it, as with Asia Cement and other uh, companies which mined the mountains around the Turuku Gorge. Or we can try to relate to it more like Truku people uh, did traditionally.
1: But the two giants.
0: Where the mountain was their hunting ground, which they, they knew intimately and respected, and they had to do so in order to survive.
1: Well, that's lovely. Like, uh, I do hope that you get to translate both of them. (laughs) I'll be very keen on reading them both in Chinese and in English. So with this, I would like to thank Daryl for this wonderful interview today. I'm very delighted that we get to talk to you about eco translation, especially in Taiwan, literature in our podcast series. I believe this is a rising field that from now to the next five to ten years will continue to boom as important cultural productions for Taiwan. We look forward to more of your eco-translation in the near future, and hopefully to get you back to talk about another book when you finalize them. Thank you so much, Daryl, for coming to join us at Kongzhong Zibo Taiwan. We hope to meet you on air next time. Thank you so much. It's been
0: great talking to you.